Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, my charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. This is Critical is the show where we examine all of our assumptions about culture, like that anyone but Greg is going to inherit the Roy dynasty on HBO's succession. Come on, it's gotta be Greg. In this game of King Lear, Greg the Egg is the innocent one. Kendall is desperate for approval. Roman is a masochist. And Shiv is just a terrible tactician. Greg's playing the long game. And as he said last season, if it is to be said, so it is. Today, we're gonna talk about tech and culture. Sometimes I think technology is the masculine form of the word culture. I know that when I was pitching a book about the internet to groups of men, they always perked up at the word technology and went kind of limp at the word culture. I guess culture is Vermeer and technology is like Peter Thiel or Jeff Bezos. I mean, seriously, try this with a friend. Say, I'm really interested in the culture of romance and their eyes will glaze over. But then say, I'm really interested in the technology of romance, and their eyes will turn to dollar signs. You're thinking of a competitor for Bumble. At the same time, perhaps technology and culture are not two sides of a coin. Perhaps they're in tension with each other. Perhaps they're incompatible. It could be that culture exists in a world of beautiful material things like books and paintings and humans and ballet performances in three-dimensional space, and technology is just the name for the surveillance state and data gouging. Now, that's only a slight exaggeration of the position taken by my 16-year-old son. I've probably already mentioned this kid a dozen times on this show already, but one of the hard facts of existence in my house is that this 16-year-old rejects digital technology. When I offered him a smartphone years ago, he looked horrified and despairing. He rejected it, and he's since tried to steer clear of even word processing. He lugs around a manual typewriter and a record player and has no phone and doesn't touch social media. You know, when he's out of the house, he's out. He can be gone for hours, and I have no way to reach him. He should use a payphone, you say, like we used to when we were kids? There are no payphones. My guest today takes a position only a few degrees away from my son's. He's the novelist Dave Eggers, and he's one of my favorite people to talk to about everything. In general, Dave steers clear of Wi-Fi, he doesn't have a smartphone, he uses no social media and email only sparingly, and he reads on paper, bound into folios and pressed into codices. That is, books. Where he does intersect with tech is in his extraordinary fiction about it. Heartbreaking work of staggering genius, Treated Web 1.0, The Circle and Hologram for the King, these are some of the best novels of the past 20 years. I spoke 
to Dave on Trumpcast about his last novel, The Captain and the Glory. And today, we are talking about his new novel, the sequel to The Circle called The Every. It is a terrific book. The company in the new book's title, The Every, is a techno-oligarch's Ugh, I hate that expression, wet dream, but it's what comes to mind. A combination of Google and Amazon hellbent on perfecting the world through quantifying, analyzing, and optimizing every aspect of life. But in real life, some things can't be optimized. For example, an interview recording. Sorry, I've been playing with Eric's dog here, and he wanted to bring me this ball to, to play fetch, but he just ran at full speed through a glass door. Oh no, he is not the smartest. Okay, so once Dave was done with his colleague's dog, I asked him to start with a reading from The Every. In this passage, protagonist Delaney Wells is getting a tour of The Every's offices while interviewing for a job there. And we get a laundry list of the company's history of stylish management team-building strategies. Capital P Play was last year's management theory, following multitasking, single-tasking, grit, learning from failure, napping, cardio working, saying no, saying yes, the wisdom of the crowd over trusting one's gut, trusting one's gut over the wisdom of the crowd. Viking management theory, Commissioner Gordon workflow theory, X-teams, B-teams, embracing simplicity, pursuing complexity, seeking zemblanity, creating through radical individualism, creativity through groupthink, creativity through the rejection of groupthink, organizational mindfulness, organizational blindness, micro-work, macro-sloth, fear-based camaraderie, love-based terror, working while standing, working while ambulatory, learning while sleeping, and most recently, limes. I mean, I love how this goes off the rails. Like by the end, those are just not things. You don't think line management <laughs> theory is a real thing? You've got to keep up with these things. Every time I think I made one of them up, somebody will say, oh, that we, that's how our company works. It's Viking management theory. <laughs> I mean, what I love about this list is it encapsulates a lot about this book and your approach to satire, which is that it begins with an appreciation of some of these words. And I have to say, I worked in a VC for a, a year, a very weird year. Mm. I was commuting back to Brooklyn. Um, That's a good title for the book, Virginia. <laughs> a very weird year. A very weird year, yes. But I first heard people talk, you know, people like younger than I am, but, you know, sort of seemingly from my milieu, using expressions like table stakes, and low-hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. instead of thinking like, this is jargon, when you haven't heard it before, I thought these people were the greatest poets. Like, I just was yeah. like, table stakes, <laughs> man. Do they have, and I like went home to figure out, you know, and I was, they're drawing from a deep well of poker analogies to talk about kind of baseline accomplishments in a particular, you know, those are just table stakes. Anyway, there must be a first day that someone said disrupt or mindfulness in this setting. And it was interesting yeah. and, sh and cool and a meme. And, and then the next, you know, what, 700 times or 7,000 times in the Valley, it still like hits a chord with people. And yeah. then... There's one day where you say sustainability and it's a year old and people glaze over. And I just, yeah. the arc that you describe with those expressions from just like 
poetry to total obsolescence is just my favorite. That's the currency of the realm here. Yeah. In Northern California and Silicon Valley is like, what is that new word? Mm -hmm. And how many times can you slip it into a conversation as noun and verb and adjective? And also, how can you organize everything that you do around that one word? And I've seen it happen, you know, scalability and disruption and grit and, you know, for that 18 month period, that's all you're asked about at all times. How does this fit into this new word? Yes. And disrupt has survived far longer than I thought. Yep. What's really weird is that humanities are more or less owned now, or at least been squashed by Silicon Valley culture, which is just an outright flip from when you know, 35 years ago or something, when I bought the first Macintosh, it was one or 2% of the market. And it was the only sort of humanistic kind of interface that you could find yeah. that for those of us who can't do math or add or anything like that could use because everything else was code and zeros and ones. And it was uh, from an entirely different language. But now that Apple has, you know, engaged with or dominated the market mm -hmm. and you have this sort of inconceivable at that time, total conquest yeah. of culture, of the humanities, of everything, the datification of all aspects of life, which I don't think anybody could have seen coming, you know, and it, and it continues without pause or obstacle. You know, there is nothing that we will not subject to that same, whether it's that tortured language or whether it's just the outright, you know, application of numbers to every everything we do, mm -hmm. from the value of a friend to uh, the worth of a human soul. It's all uh, we can we can think we can find an algorithm for it and a number to apply, and that gives us sort of comfort and ease to to have that settled. All of these questions that otherwise were unanswerable, now we can put a number to them. That is a great point about the Apple. I had a 2E, I guess, in the 80s. And oh, yeah. yeah. Is that what you had too? Apple 2E? But I remember. Yeah, that's what I went to college with. Yes, a 2SE. Okay. Oh, 2SE. Yeah. Okay. Yours might have had yeah. an extra extra K of data. It had an extra S. It had an extra Come S. On. Exactly right. Which is key. Did it? All the functions of the S. <laughs> the I have no idea. <laughs> So reading this novel, I was reminded of 1984, George Or Orwell's 1984. And I don't know if that's an accident or because Orwell is the template for modern satire. But both books start on a bright day in these dystopian settings, the Victory Mansions in 1984 and the corporate campus of the every in your book. The first line of 1984 is, quote, it was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. The Every starts with an equally powerful line. Delaney emerged from the dim subway and into the world of sterling light. Tell me about the light you describe. Why do both of these novels start with brightness? Yeah, I didn't, I've never made that connection with light. I, you know, Treasure Island is a place I know and love pretty well. It's a, you know, man-made island in the middle of San Francisco Bay. And it was a former naval base, and it was supposed to be a city. It was supposed to be a, all kinds of things. But then it's finally being developed now. But um, after they presumably mitigated all the toxic waste mm -hmm. underneath. Mm -hmm. But 
it's uh, it is one of the brighter places anywhere you'll see. Mm. Like you're just surrounded by water, so you have to squint almost to look around. But I wanted the Every to have taken over this island mm-hmm. because it is and has been for about you know. 50 years, very takeoverable. Nobody else knew what to do with it, wanted it. And I thought, well, this company that wants to sort of have defensible space in a way Mm. and to set itself apart, but it can see everybody, but it itself remains kind of occluded and Mm. apart. Um, I thought it was a perfect, it's connected to San Francisco, but not really, you know, it's uh, connected to other land masses and humans, but not really. And meanwhile, I wanted the every campus to be very appealing mm-hmm. on so many levels because the people that work there do want to be a part. They, they want a closed, hermetically sealed environment where presumably nothing they don't want to have happen or uh, can happen. Yeah. And so everything there is closely monitored and regulated and every word is measured because it's being recorded and analyzed. And so that way they can show up or better yet, live there, free of all of the chaos of the of the rest of the world. And for a lot of people, I always want to make this, or I wanted to make the circle seem like a pretty appealing place to about fifty one percent of readers. Like, yeah. huh, I would live, I could live there, I could like that. And uh, which is different, I guess, than I love Orwell, everything he did. But I, you know, when nineteen eighty four starts, the world is already a shitty place. It's uh it is a dystopia already, and I wanted in this and the circle that we're still in the midst of deciding what we're going to become as a species. After the break, so what's Dave Eggers gonna do about this dystopia? Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food service. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today I'm talking to the author Dave Eggers about his new book, The Every, which is definitely not pro-tech. I understand why you're ideologically opposed to some technology, but surely you have to use the internet sometimes. Yeah, I prefer, you know, the outside world, I guess the natural world. I want to use these tools at a bare minimum. I, I still write on an old MacBook Pro. I think it's probably 15 years old now. All my software I own from when I bought it <laughs> in the early part of this century. I don't want to update it. Yeah. I don't want to be engaged with Adobe for the rest of my hmm. life. I don't want them to check in on me or I don't have to check in on them. I'm not, I'm not even going to tell you what's going on with Adobe. My son, also like you, doesn't use a smartphone. He's 16, but he also doesn't use a phone at all. And when I I gave him a phone for his 12th birthday, I already knew that he was squeamish around phones and he would take days off saying that he got screen sick and just didn't want to look at at anything. But um, I gave him a phone, sure that, you know, now he could connect with his friends. And it was like someone whose mother had told them they were going to 
be drafted. He just, it was like, he was like, please, no. And I, he, wow. he's like, eyes filled with tears. Um, wow. And I still think he, he was just, I th- still think he's been like, just heartbroken at how much life is requiring screens of him. But I want to know, I want to know that, that particular Dave Eggers reason that the internet oh. doesn't hit the spot for you. Like if I just said, if I said, come on, I will lock down the security stuff and get you set up on Twitter. You are so good at, at, at like short form, brilliant phrases. You'll have so much fun with this. It's like quippy and interesting and cu- occasionally subversive. And, you know, you'll not see any ads and whatever. Would you feel like Ben did, my son? I am getting drafted. No. Get away. Listen, I the people that are good at Twitter, I think it's uh, it is a blast to take a dive sometimes into their work. Like we have McSweeney's.net, which is our humor website, and sometimes when a new writer has puts up a piece, I'll go look at their Twitter feed um, on my laptop, and um, and it's just you know you could lose two hours <laughs> without even taking a breath because there's so much brilliance and wit. And so I admire the form so much when people are good at it. It just came about when my life was already kind of full. Yeah. Like I, I already have enough stuff in my life. I've got a, you know, got things to do. I've got a family. <laughs> yes. I, I want to go outside. <laughs> you know, I want to do things. So if you add another thing that makes me look at a screen and stay inside, I reject it. And so the life that I think that I've struggled for years with the sedentary nature of writing. Mm-hmm. I sit in my garage. I have, you know, little two little windows. And you got to sit there for just an astonishing amount of time to do anything of any work. Yeah. And so I cannot stand how much time has to be spent indoors um, in a chair to do that. So anytime I can get away from that, that's what I do. So that's, the, that's my personal yeah. life balance. Yep. And your son, Ben, is also, he knows himself. I love kids at that age that just have a sense of like, this is what I want and this is what I don't want. Yeah. And the more that we require them to engage digitally, where you have to turn in your homework through an iPad and blah, 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 blah. Every pediatrician, every American medical association, every study that you ever find says that screen time, increased screen time is bad for mental health. And so requiring it in schools, which is the greatest mistake in the history of American education, we are requiring them to use devices for most of the day to do their schoolwork, which is a, just a catastrophe. We're, we're, we're saying you can only be one way. Growing up in New Hampshire, I just by a weird chance, the local college had a mainframe computer that you could dial into in the 70s and 80s. And I did as a child. And I think the internet was such a um, expressive, formative place for me at such a young age that Mm -hmm. I almost can't let go of it. It was a good place for people who, you know, maybe like didn't love the experience of being a body in space. You know, social mm. life and school dances and sports were, you know, not really my jam. And initially, you know, when I was little, and I was really happy that there was a place where 
kind of writing and reason could get you at the table, you know? Mm, um, you didn't have right. to, like, flirt or be good or be bad or be wild or be sporty. But I guess, what do you say to people who really found themselves on the internet? I was at Salon.com yeah. uh, when it was founded. I wouldn't be a publisher without desktop publishing and, and all of the digital tools that democratized uh, that field, at least for people like me. It's a matter of moderation, in my view, and, and egalitarianism. In those early days, when I would sit and, and listen to the folks talk about all the utopian ideals of the internet and the goals, I was like, oh, okay, I can get behind that. It actually has so much to do with the hippie ideals mm-hmm. that I loved about San Francisco, too. Yeah. And then when it became, when the profit motive came in and these companies began monetizing uh, your participation, and then when the surveillance came into it, when I thought, I remember the moment, because it was at Salon, mm-hmm. and one of my fellow editors said, hey, come here, look at this. And he showed me a screen where somebody, where you could watch somebody else do searches. It was oh. anonymous, but you could see the person keying in how to get rid of my eczema or, you know, some personal search. And we could watch that person go from there to like pictures of Harry Hatcher <laughs> or something like yeah. that. It was, and it was this voyeurism that he found really, you know, we didn't know how to feel about it. Mm-hmm. I was so creeped out and horrified that somebody had thought to do this. Yes. Right? Yes. What kind of mind (laughs) thought to spy on somebody? Who opened that back door so that you you could watch somebody make these private searches? And who created that interface? Yeah. So that we could, any human could watch it. And so again and again, when it, went from being connected and sharing ideas online to this very creepy and dark voyeuristic aspect of it. It was always the flip side within seconds of a great idea. There was some horrible surveillance-oriented, spying-oriented application of that same technology. And I just got to the point where I thought, I just can't, it's so... There's too much downside mm, mm-hmm. to be fully engaged. But I mean, you have to be kind of set up in your life to be able to disengage from the internet. I mean, it's kind of a privilege. Like, you can do this because you're Dave Eggers, but very few people can afford it. I mean, afford it both financially and even logistically. I mean, everything, getting a job, going on a date is done on your phone now. I think you just have to decide that it's your life that, like Virginia's son, if you say, you know what, and I had never heard the term screen sick before, which is so apt. I think we all have that hangover sometimes when we spend four or five hours online and we have nothing to show for it. And we feel like just wrung out and um, and jittery and anxious and upset mm-hmm. <laughs> and conflicted and helpless. I think that if we say, you know what, I, you know when I felt really good, it was that day that I was out by the lake and we had lunch, you know, in that weird roadside uh, cantina. And then after that, uh, we took a short hike and then we randomly met that older couple and she said she was the first test tube baby. And (laughs) wasn't that weird to find that out? 
And then at the end of the day, I checked my email for half an hour and I answered a few messages and then I read a book for a little bit and I went to sleep. You know, like that was the day I felt best. So if that was the day you felt best, then how do you structure your life where you can have more days Mm -hmm. like that? How do you feel best? And so as an example, like, you know, we've never had, we didn't have Wi-Fi at home until this last year with COVID. And then we had to because my kids are in school. And so um, I can't be at home with Wi-Fi because I will watch random music videos from the 80s until uh, my eyes bleed. And so I, now I write on a little sailboat. Um, docked in the bay and it's a, just big enough for one human and I sit inside the the hull and I uh, cabin and I and I sit and I write and it's not connected to anything and so as long as you make it intentional and you say huh I'm going to study myself a little bit and I'm going to make choices that enable me to live as I want to uh, we all have that power I guess unless you're obligated to be connected 18 hours a day like maybe if you're a tech reporter or something. And then I guess you're, you're shit out of luck, but because <laughs> I do have friends that are in that boat and they're like, buddy, I don't have that option. But most of us do have some choices. And I think it's a matter of sort of intentionally uh, studying yourself and making those choices. Okay. Listeners, first a caution. I'm not sure we should try this at home. The Eggers approach. I mean, I hugely admire Dave. His novels, the plotting, the diction, his slyness, his intellectual generosity. And then, of course, I I really, really look up to the work he does to support literacy. But I got to say, writing on a boat in San Francisco Bay, I mean, I'd love to do this. And I would definitely accept any fellowship that would sail me away from modernity. But that's just not possible for me. And I can see how it would be impossible for most people to unplug as much as Dave does. You know, there was a line that stuck with me from a talk I heard by tech philosopher Bruce Sterling one year at South by Southwest. He said, the poor love their cell phones. And what he meant was, as I understood him, if you don't have all the options in the world, if you don't have giant dusty libraries and shelves upon shelves of vinyl, and you don't have friends to discuss your record collection with in your wine cellar on your boat, you might end up devoted to the single locus of connection, humor, news, flirtation, and information that modern life provides us with now, our phones. And then, of course, your attention is commodified and you become the product of tech companies. But what choice do most of us have? As I said before, there are no payphones. After the break, are analytics the enemy of culture? Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... The charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Welcome 
Welcome back to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Today, we're talking to the great Dave Eggers about his newest book, The Every. The book's protagonist is Delaney Wells, who has a vendetta against the internet conglomerate that the book is named after, The Every. Delaney is a wilderness lover and former National Parks employee who quit when location-tracking smartphones started being required in national parks. Surveillance is a huge part of the every, as well as what tech giants do with the data they gather, mainly turning every aspect of life into a measurable statistic. Dave, talk to me about Delaney Wells and this horror at the quantified self that is a part of the internet. There is a company that I won't name that's not too far from where I'm sitting in the mission that somebody read that it was good to have laughter in the office. Mm. And so instead of just saying, well, of course, nobody had to study that to realize it was good to laugh. Yeah. But they treated this like new knowledge and then not content to leave it there. They created a device that would measure. This is in real life. This is not in the book. That, that would measure how much laughter there was on a daily basis in a given office. So it's some device, like a conference call sort of speaker, I guess, on the table. And it would sort of, you know, track how much laughter. It could discern what laughter was apart from any other sounds. And then at the end of the day would say, well, it looks like we had about 43 minutes of <laughs> laughter today. Come on, come on, team. We got to get up, get that up to... 58 or whatever goal it was. <laughs> and so you take something that is just an intuitive truth mm. and then suddenly you create measurements and silly tools that measure them at, at great cost. And then you have to create a reason for that tool to exist. Yes. So you have to have thresholds and goals and quotas. Yeah. So then you have a laughter quota and that kind of sense that like how do we judge our day and our worth and our value according to numerical standards right yes. and how much laughter did we do how many steps did we do how trustworthy are our friends how potent are our orgasms compared to our previous ones or our friends and neighbors. I think I put that in the book, that it's yes. not good enough to measure against yourself, but also <laughs> those in your social circle. Yes. You know, when films became, you know, when we got the Rotten Tomatoes aggregation, um, that, if we looked at that 40 years ago, that would have seen be, been seen as an impossible dystopian outcome that we were going to call a movie this sort of like a novel or like a poem or a dance piece mm -hmm. or a painting, kind of an unmeasurable thing. Yes. But suddenly we say, well, no, we're going to take some, we're going to bring science to this. And now we know Sex in the City 2 is, is a 71, so we can feel good about watching it. Or, yes. I, or we can feel 71% uh, about watching it. Like it really calibrates what your reaction right. is. We can feel pretty good, you know, pretty good about watching it. Well, do you know how when you get on Netflix, it'll say 82% match? Yes. Right? Yeah. There's, there's no explanation of what it's matching. Is it matching? Yeah, it's not matching anything to anything. But we do feel better somehow. Oh, that's a pretty good, that's a, that's a high percentage match. 
But it always just gets me for international espionage. It's just like, I'm just like, oh, surprise. Can you never push me outside my comfort zone? It's another thing that I will watch that is exactly like everything I've watched. And I will be satisfied by it Um, because I've been trained. I think if you were, if you put the same match, you know, at a local, uh, you know, burrito place and the, the, uh, you know, veggie burrito was an 81% match, that would mean... (laughs) A lot to somebody. Yeah. If you just wrote that down, oh yeah, okay. I didn't, it doesn't have to be connected to yes. anything. Yes. It doesn't have to be vaguely scientific, but if you put a number next to it, then I guess it gives us some sort of solace or security in that choice because there are too many choices. There's too much yes. information, too many things. And so the more we can gain that comfort by like, well, I know my friends. I know Sherry is an 81. I know Thomas is an 89. I'm a little bit worried about Angelica because she's a, you know, she's only in the low 70s right now, but maybe we can get that up. <laughs> is there any line in the sand that anybody will draw? I, I don't know. You know, it's entertaining to watch to some extent, and I think that this species is going to continue to look unrecognizable with every se- successive generation. I just want to ask you ask you one more thing. It sounds like you have a great deal of ambivalence about science because, you know, you instead of just saying being in nature is a given good, read Wordsworth, well, studies show that children should be in nature. So that right. because you we all need to kind of backstop uh, up to and including yeah. the pandemic, right? Like you don't want to start doubting science. It's it's yeah. more that you want to I think one wants to, especially a novelist like you, wants to bring in a whole other idiom, you know, that isn't about is this, uh, you know, a way to maximize pleasure and reduce pain. That's just like a whole other way of thinking about life that has existed in fiction and is honestly flourishing in fiction, which is how why I feel confident that it'll, you know, the ironists or the poets will take the day back. And then the sciences will ta- make another rush at it. And then, and that we live in tension. Yeah, it's been going on for a while. You're right. And um, I, I think it's a bit unique now because of how the saturation possible with the internet, which is itself a science and math and data oriented entity. Yes. But I will say like, I'm a big science nerd. Yeah when it comes to discovery, when it comes to the animal world, when it comes to space exploration. I just, I'm in the middle, when I get off uh, our call, I have to finish a piece I'm writing about flying a jetpack (gasps) in Southern California because I, I have a thing about flight. I love new forms of flight. And I heard about this guy, David Maiman, an Australian that invented a jetpack and he lets people fly it, you know, yeah. for a weekend. He does trainings. And so I went down there a few months ago and I got to fly this jetpack and um, it was very cool and uh, very strange. And I love this Maiman guy and his team. And um, I, 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 now my jaw is dropped. I, what do you mean? Very cool and strange. You flew. Well, yeah, no, I mean, they keep you on a, well, a tether of all things, but <laughs> you can't fly fly um, because they're safety issues. These guys are very careful. So you're flying at most like four or five feet above there. But 
That's the kind of stuff I love. I just think all of these brilliant people with engineering degrees, if they could all be applied to look outward as opposed to finding ways to surveil each other, I think that we're happier when we look, when we stand shoulder to shoulder and we look outward rather than looking into each other ad nauseum to the point where we uh, are jittery, paranoid, and unhappy. Yes, you know, yes. I think that we need to look together uh, into the future. After hearing Dave Eggers argue so persuasively for unplugging, you might be thinking of unplugging yourself. Would I be happier if I didn't know what Kirsten Cinema wore on the Senate floor today? Would my blood pressure be lower if I didn't spend time trying to figure out how my friend from high school can afford that house? Is it possible to enjoy the things I love without knowing what the internet thinks about those things? As I said before, the freedom to unplug is admittedly mm, doesn't work for everyone. In fact, catering to the privileged and their online journey has become one woman's sole mission. Our next guest, Maggie Bleak Sanders, according to her website, accepts a small portfolio of high-end clients who seek to curate an artisanal, bespoke unplugging experience. Please welcome Maggie Bleak Sanders. Hey, Virginia. Thanks for being here. So this is a very specific service you offer. When you take on a new client, how does it work? Walk me through it. Okay, well, it is like a process. First, you have to submit an essay on the following meditation. If a woman steps away from the internet, but doesn't announce it first, did she ever really exist? Wow. Okay, and then after you pay my 18-month retainer fee and sign an NDA... Wait, I signed the NDA? Yeah. Shouldn't I make you sign an NDA since I'm entrusting my whole online life to you? Okay, that's super cute. You're funny, Virginia. Okay, so after your first check clears, we'll meet in an aesthetically pleasing location of my choice and find one aspect of the internet that you can start to wean off of. And it is very important not to go cold turkey. I had a client who, before meeting me, thought it was a clever idea to quit LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Venmo all in one day. Her nose bled for 16 days straight. Oh, God. So what's the first step to unplugging? Okay, I'm glad you asked. Well, first, you want to tease your exit with a playful yet mysterious photo and caption on Instagram and Twitter. Something that lets the public know that you might be gone for a stretch. So I'm thinking like maybe your feet in a pedicure bowl at a very clean, well-yelped nail salon with the caption, I didn't have a vacation planned, but then I got this pedicure. And then you add the shruggy lady emoji to that. That way, in your absence, your public will be thinking aspirational thoughts about you. Nobody, and I mean nobody, wants to hear you say, oh, it's all too much lately, taking a face break to preserve my sanity. Okay, gross. And that's sad. People do not get on the internet to care about the mental health of somebody they tangentially know from their first job out of college. So you think it's important to create the illusion that you're just stepping away for a bit, not leaving permanently? Okay, yeah, you never want your followers to know that you are actually quitting. It makes them feel the deep, deep shame of staying. 
Okay, it sounds like you're more focused on my followers' experience with my departure than my own. That's adorable that you think you mean something without your followers, Virginia. Okay, I'm sensing that unplugging might be a bit of a challenge for you. We should get started right away with my deluxe platinum unplugging package. I'll have one of my three assistants send over the paperwork. I ask that you fill out the forms in black ink. Blue clashes with the logo at the top of every page. Thank you, Maggie. You've certainly given me a lot to think about. Okay, good. Just as long as you don't post those thoughts on social media. (laughs) Okay. Next week on This is Critical, a rare and exclusive interview with journalist and person everyone loves to hate on Twitter, Louise Mensch. I secretly like her. Just don't call her a provocateur. First of all, I'm not a provocateur. It's rubbish as far as I'm concerned. The fact that there is a bunch of trolls that don't like me doesn't mean I'm set out to provoke them. Because I don't care what they think one way or the other. I'm just reporting. I don't mind if you don't like it. I don't give a damn. That's it for this week's show. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, take a minute to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. If you don't want to rate and review it, that's okay too. Just keep listening. For more information and to keep tabs on the show, follow me on Twitter at page 88. I'm still there for now because I don't have my boat and this critical pod. That's at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan and Stitcher. Kate James was our comic relief this week. Harry Huggins is the producer with help from consulting producer Tamika Weatherspoon. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme, which I love. And Josephine Martorana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. See you next time and stay critical. Stitcher. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.